theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Noi Mashaninov in loving memory of her grandfather, her, her grandmother, her safta, Gizla Gita Basreb Nassan, who just passed away on the 26th of Tammuz, 5782, dedicated by her loving and beloved granddaughter, Tehenish Masatsura Bitsar Hachayim, and may she remain an eternal source of light and blessing and inspiration to you and to your family and to the entire community and all of the Jewish people. So we are now in a very interesting week, the days between Tisha B'Av and Chamisha Asa B'Av, the 9th of Av and the 15th of Av. Of course, this year the 9th of Av was on Shabbos, so the fast was postponed to Sunday. So Sunday was Yud Av, so today is Yud Beis Av, and then tomorrow, Wednesday, is Yud Gimel, Thursday and Friday is Chamisha Asa B'Av, Erev Shabbos, the 15th day of Av. Now we would think that the two days are not really connected. But we see that the way our sages define the ninth of Av and the 15th day of Av is apparently that they have a very intimate connection. And what we want to explore today is this connection and the uniqueness of this day, of the 15th day of Av, which has a paradox. On one level, it's extolled as maybe the greatest day of the year. And yet practically, it doesn't seem to have any rituals or unique things that we do or we don't do on that day. So let's begin. In your source sheet, you'll see the first, the first source is the last Mishnah in Masechus Tainus. The tractate that's dedicated to fast days is called Tainus, which means a fast. And the last Mishnah, it's on page 626, in Masechus Tainus, reads as follows. B'tisha B'av, on the ninth of Av, five calamities happened. Number one, Nigzirel Avesenu Shleikansula Aretz. That's the day that there was an edict given to our forefathers that they should not go into Eretz Yisrael. The spies came back on the 9th of Av, and that's when the edict was that that generation would remain in the desert for 40 years. Anyone, anyone who was between the ages of 20 and 60 would live for 40 years in the desert, and they would pass away in the desert. Their children would go, and that happened on Tisha B'av. The second thing is Charev Habayiz Barishayna. The first Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. The second thing is Bashniya. The second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. The first one was destroyed in 586 BCE. The second one in 70 after the Common Era. The first by the Babylonians. The second by the Romans. Both, imagine, Jews understood this wasn't a coincidence, that it was exactly the same date on the calendar, hundreds of years apart. Hundreds of years apart. But exactly the same day that both Bate Mikdash went up in flames. The fourth thing that happened on Tisha B'av was Nilkeda Betar. The city of Betar was conquered. And what this refers to is, after the second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed in the year 70, approximately 60 years later, Bar Kochva staged a major revolt against the Rome. His name was Shimon ben Kuziva. They called him Bar Kochva, which means the star, the Jewish star, Darach Kochav Miyakov. And the, the revolt was unbelievably successful. It was so successful that I believe two complete legions of the Roman army were defeated. Bar Kochva started to rebuild the third base Amikdash. He minted his own coins. He emancipated Jerusalem for a while. Rabbi Akiva even felt that he was Mashiach. This is it, 60 years after the destruction. Remember, 70 years after the first destruction, the Jews came back. So he thought 60 years after the second destruction, that's it, the Gula is here. 
Betar was the last fortress where he and his army and the Jews were gathered. And on Tisha B'Av, Betar was conquered by the Romans. Bar Kaichva was killed. The survivors were killed. Rabbi Kiva was also killed. And this also happened on Tisha B'Av. This happened around the year 135 after the Kamen Era, around 65 years after the destruction of the Second Beis Hamikdash. That happened on Tisha B'Av. The last thing is V'nechrisha Ha'ir. Adrian, the Caesar of Rome, decided to plow Jerusalem. In other words, not just expel the Jews from Jerusalem, but basically make it a place that would never be recognized as a place where anybody lived. He flattened the mountain. That's why when you look at the Harabayas, the Temple Mount doesn't look like a mountain. It was lowered, I think, close to a thousand feet. Imagine. He lowered the mountain close to a thousand feet. You know how that's a thousand feet, approximately, flattened it. That's why it just looks like a platform today, you know, where the mosque is built, where the kaisel is. But the whole city was plowed. It was plowed. So it's basically, it's like farmland. It's a place where, where foxes could begin to roam. That's how much he wanted to uproot any vestige of Jewish life there. That also happened on Tisha B'Av. So we have five things. Our, par- our forefathers experienced the decree that they will not go into Eretz Yisrael on Tisha B'Av. This is, of course, in the early times of Jewish history, shortly after the exodus of Egypt. First Beis Hamikdash is destroyed. The second Beis Hamikdash is destroyed. That's number two and number three. Betar is conquered, number four. And number five, the city is plowed. The Mishnah continues. You would think that it's completely disconnected. But the Mishnahs come together. In fact, in our, our Gemara, it's even one Mishnah. Amar Reb Shimon ben Gamliel. Reb Shimon ben Gamliel said, Reb Shimon ben Gamliel lived shortly after the destruction. And he was, in fact, one of the ten martyrs, one of the ten sages, Asaru Yemalchus, that Rome executed. Reb Shimon ben Gamliel says, There were no holidays. There were no days as beautiful, as joyous for the Jewish people. Like the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. So is saying the Jewish calendar has a lot of great days, but none of them come close to these two days, the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. What happened? For on these days, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out in white clothes. Each of them borrowed her garment from another one, not to humiliate somebody who didn't have, somebody who may have been poor. In fact, as the Gemara says, even the Bas Melech, the princess, the daughter of a Jewish king, would borrow her garment from the daughter of the Kayin Gadol. The daughter of the Kayin Gadol would borrow her garment from the daughter of the assistant to the Kayin Gadol. Everybody would borrow from somebody else, even the most noble and aristocratic and people who thankfully had a lot of money, but that nobody should feel left out. and the daughters of Yerushalayim, would go out and dance in the vineyards on these two days. And as the Mishnah continues, the Bachrim would come out and many Shaduchim Many matches were created on that moment. I'm just going to add in parentheses, it's not the theme of our class, but this is a very interesting idea, that on Yom Kippur, <laughs> right, and on Tuba'av, the girls would go out to the vineyards of Jerusalem, 
And obviously people who didn't have a shidduch and boys would come out and a lot of shidduchim were created. And the Mishnah describes the conversations they had and the Gemara describes it. There were different types of young women and different types of men and many matches were made. And one of the great Rishonim, he wrote a sefer called The Kalboy, he asks a question. He says, is this really the best way to do it? And his answer is unbelievable. His answer is, he says, this was not the regular girls and boys. These were the girls who were older and the boys who were older. And they didn't have shaduchim. And they didn't have shaduchim. The mothers weren't getting telephone calls every night. You know, there's nine people who want to date your daughter or want to date your son. So he says, this was the way. In order, so imagine that they dedicated Yom Kippur and Hamisha Sabaav. For these older women and these older men, they should be able to have shaduchim. That's his explanation, the Kalbay's explanation. Which means that a person should appreciate when you think of a shidduch or you help make a match between somebody who's older, never underestimate the power and the significance and the, the, the kindness and the value of that, that the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, focused on this theme. You would think Yom Kippur confess your sins, daven, stay in shul, but a major, you know, this didn't take five minutes. <laughs> this is a major part of Yom Kippur, just to highlight how significant and amazing this work is. So just, it's a very powerful motivation for anybody who ever has an idea. And sometimes you keep it to yourself, you know, maybe you'll mention it to your husband by dinner, maybe. But uh, you have an idea, pursue it. Try to execute it. Maybe even bring them to the vineyards. So that's what Reb Shimon ben Gamliel said. So the Gemara, a few pages later, the next source, Tainas Daf Lamed, this is the end of Tractate Tainas, page 30, quotes Reb Shimon ben Gamliel, there were no great days like Hamisha Sabah Yom Kippur. Asked the Gemara, Bishlei Meyem Kippur, Shum Izbei Slicho Mishchila, Yom Shinitnu Bailochus I understand Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day that the second tablets were given. It's the day of atonement, the day of forgiveness. It's the day of reconciliation. Amazing. But what happened on the 15th day of Av? How did the 15th day of Av become similar to Yom Kippur, the greatest Yom Tif? So, there's not one answer. There's six answers for this. Of course, the Jewish way of answering a question. Don't give me one, give me six. Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, Yom Shehutru Shvatim Lavai Zebazah. Let me tell you what happened on the 15th of Av. It's the day on which the members of different tribes were permitted to enter one another's tribe through marriage. If you look at the English translation, they'll actually write the day that intermarriage was permitted. But what they mean by intermarriage was Shevet with Shevet, tribe with tribe. What does this mean? This goes back to a story that happened in the desert in Parshas Pinchas and Parshas Masay. The daughters of Tzlavchot came to Moshe. Their father passed away. He did not leave any sons. In the traditional laws of inheritance, the sons receive the inheritance from Tati. The daughters, of course, will be supported by the estate of the father even before the boys can take anything. And then when she gets married hopefully by the husband, by her husband, till she gets married. If there's any money or property left, they can live in the house and they get it. But they don't have to deal with any estates. Slavchot says there's a problem. 
Slavcha's daughters. We have no brothers. So what's going to happen? This inheritance is going to be lost to our family. So that's when Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Cain b'nai Slavcha doifrois. If there's no sons, the daughters should get the inheritance. If there's no children, then you go up a generation. The father, if there's no father, the uncles, etc. And then you find the closest relative. What happens afterwards is, the five daughters of Slavchad were not married. But the five of them would soon get married. They were from the tribe of Menashe. They came to Moshe Rabbeinu and they said, we have an issue. They're going to marry, maybe somebody from Reuven or Shimon or Yehuda or Yisachar or Zvulun. Out, You can marry anybody you want. They might marry any man. Now what's going to happen? Their children, Tzlavchad's daughter's children, the tribe always follows the lineage of the father, right? If I'm from Reuven, Shimon, whether you're Jewish or not, that's defined by the mother. But if you're a Kayin, a Levi, a Yisrael, that's defined by my father. If my father is a Kayin, he comes from Shevet Levi, so then that's where I go. So if Tzlavchad now, Tzlavchad's daughters are married, let's say, to somebody from the tribe of Reuven, or Shimon, or Yehuda, or Yisachar, and those children are going to inherit from their mommies, their five mommies, the field. So this, these properties are going to go over to another tribe in Eretz Yisrael, because their sons come from a different tribe. And that means the tribe of Menashe is not going to have its estate in Eretz Yisrael, because this whole chunk is going to go over to another tribe. So they were told that they could marry whoever they want, but it should be from the tribe of Menashe. It should be the tribe of Menashe. So wow, this became a new law. They, should, they could marry whoever they want. Of course they can choose, but from their tribe. So that way their children are going to be from the same tribe, like Mami and Papi. And it's going to remain in their Shevet. Very interesting mitzvah. The question was, was this an eternal mitzvah? So now generations later, if a person doesn't have sons and he inherits the, his estates to his daughter, his daughter has to marry somebody from the same tribe. So Chazal learned out that that mitzvah was only for that generation. It was for the generation of Tzlovchad's daughters. The next generation that already went into Eretz Yisrael, they didn't have this mitzvah. They learned it out. So this was An Chamish Asab Av. That was the day that they gave this verdict based on their understanding of the Torah that everybody could marry everybody. No matter the circumstances, all the shvatim, lava, zeba, all the women, all the men from all the tribes can intermarry. Intermarry again means they can get married to each other. That happened, Chamesh above. So Rabbi Yehuda says, that's the reason for the celebration. Amr Rabbi Yosef, Amr Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Yosef says, no, there's another reason. Another reason. The other reason is, Yom Shehutar Shevet Binyamin Lavoi Bakahal. The tribe of Binyamin was permitted to re enter the community. If you remember from the book of Shoftim, there was the horrible, infamous story of Pilegesh Begiva, the concubine of Giva, in which members of the tribe of Binyamin behaved in a very ruthless and sadistic way towards an innocent woman in terms of violating this person. And they would not expose the criminals. And there was a t- t- war, a civil war between the Jewish people and the tribe of Binyamin, which cost many lives. And they made a ban on Shevet Binyamin. We are not marrying into the tribe of Binyamin. On Tuba'av, they removed, they moved. They said this can't be generational. 
that generation okay, but afterwards, Shevet Binyamin was brought back in, and they became part of Klai Yisrael. That happened, Chamisha Asr, Chamisha Asr Ba'av. This occurred during the time of Asniel ben Knaz. This was the time of the Shaiftim, time of the judges, before there were kings. So he was the judge Asniel ben Knaz, and he led the people during the years 2533 from creation till 2573 from creation, and Shevet ben Yaman was allowed back. Next reason. Rabbi Barbarchana said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Yom Shekoloboy Meisei Midbar. What happened on the 15th of Av was, it's the day when the deaths of the Jewish people in the desert ceased. What does this mean? Hashem made a decree that the whole generation in the desert, between 20 and 60, would pass away. When did that happen? We learned a moment ago on Tisha B'av. So every year on Tisha B'av, the 60-year-olds basically would pass away. That year, the 40th year on Tisha B'av, nobody passed away. The decree was over. They thought maybe they made a mistake. On the 15th of Av, they saw the moon is full. And they realized Tisha B'av passed and nobody passed away. They realized the decree is over. Everybody now is going to go into the land of Israel. That happened on Chamisha Sabav. That's Rabbi Yochanan's explanation. Ula Amar. Explanation number four. Yom Shebitel Hosheya ben Eila. Another fascinating story. Hosea, the son of Ela, removed the centuries, removed the blockades, the roadblocks to Jerusalem. Another piece of history. When Shleimah HaMelech died, he was succeeded by his son Rechavam. Rechavam imposed heavier taxes, and there was a split. A new king arose by the name of Yeravam Benavot. Yeravam came from the tribe of Ephraim, Yosef. Rechavam was from Shlomo Amalek, the tribe of Yehuda. There was a split. And the Jewish people split into two separate peoples. There was what's called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Malchus Yisrael, which was led by Yeravam Benavot, who had ten tribes under him. And the king of Yehuda, Rechavam, the son of Shlomo, the grandson of David, who was the southern king. He was centered in Jerusalem, in the city of David, Ir David, and he had two tribes under him, Yehuda and Binyamin, and the Beis HaMikdash. Yeravim ben Evad didn't want the Jews to go and make their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem because they would become acquainted with the other king. So he created roadblocks, and guards, and centuries, and security. He didn't let anybody go to Yerushalayim, Yeravim ben Evad. Instead, he created golden calves in Dan and Bethel in the northern kingdom of Eretz Yisrael, resurrected idolatry in Israel and did not let anybody get there. Hosea ben Elah was the last of the southern kings. And in fact, the Tanakh says he was an idol worshiper. He was a Russia. He wasn't as bad as some of his ancestors, but he was not considered a righteous person at all, Hosea. And he was the last one in his time. The Assyrian king came and exiled the ten tribes of Israel. And the northern kingdom was obliterated by the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom remained intact for another 150 years till Babylonia came and conquered Yerushalayim, destroyed the Beis Hamidosh and exiled them as well, Nebuchadnezzar. Hosea ben Elah was the last of the southern kings, I'm sorry, northern kings, and he removed the roadblocks. When? On Chamesha Sabah. He said... 
You can go wherever you want. You want to go to Yerushalayim, go to Yerushalayim. You want to go worship the golden calf in Don, worship the golden calf. You want to go to Bethel, worship there, worship there. He created this form of democracy. You want to go worship in Jerusalem? Gesundheit. This happened on Chamesh Asabov. Reb Masna Amar, the fifth reason is, Yom Shenitnu Harugei Beitar Likvura. You remember we mentioned that Beitar was defeated on Tishabov? Hundreds of thousands were killed. The Romans did not let the corpses be buried. They remain exposed for 14 years. And they don't decompose. On Hamisha Asabov, 14 years later, approximately the year 148 after the common era, he allows them all to be buried. Adrian's successor allows them to be buried, and they're all buried. They even made a special bracha that day. Hatoiv v'hametiv, the fourth blessing of benching, hatoiv v'hametiv, baruch Hashem lekeim that was created on the day of Chamisha Sabav when they allowed them to be buried. The Jews were very encouraged by the fact that even though it was a terrible massacre, no, none of the bodies decomposed. You're talking about many years, 14 years. And the bodies were allowed to be buried. That was like a wink of the Reboi Nishalaylam. I'm still with you. It was a very special moment. It was like in the, in the depth of darkness, it was a glimmer of hope. That happened on Chamisha Sabav. So we have five reasons... Why? There's no greater than the Chamesha Sabah. Reason number one, intermarriage is allowed. That, that won't come out good. Uh, if they do a clip, it's not going to be good. So let's do this again. Re- <laughs> you know how clips work, right? You take out what you want, and uh, Rabbi Waiwai encouraging intermarriage. <laughs> Intertribal marriage, let's put it that way, okay? No, I looked up the art school Gemara to see the English and I saw the day that intermarriage was permitted between, but you'd have to read, between the tribes. So that happened on Chamesh Asabov. The second thing is, the tribe of Binyamin was allowed to enter the rest of the community and marry with everybody else. The third reason we said is, the day that the people who were dying in the desert stopped dying on the 40th year, that was the third reason. The fourth reason we said is Hosea ben Ela removed the roadblocks heading to Jerusalem. And the fifth reason is the day that the victims of Betar, the Jews slain, slain in Betar, were buried. Now, obviously, these are all important events, significant events. But do you hear in any of these events a reason to say that this is the greatest day in the Jewish calendar? It's greater than Pesach when we came out of Mitzrayim, it's greater than Shavuos, when we received the Torah, it's greater literally, than, it's, it's like Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. These are all nice events, significant events, important events, certainly events that have been helpful for the Jewish people. They removed blo- roadblocks, they removed blockages, they removed the decrees, they allowed the, the, the victims to be buried. All significant things. But Rosh Hashem Gamliel says, that's why the greatest holiday, greater than the day we became a people, the greater than the day we were liberated from Mitzrayim. It's hard to understand. And, and if, it's that, if that's the case, why is it that today on the 15th day of Av, there's no major celebration? It's like the greatest day of the year. Yom Kippur we observe very intently, very intensely. Chamisha Asabov, we don't say Tachnun, that's it. Today, Chamisha Asabov, you don't say Tachnun, we don't confess our sins. What happened to this great, great Yom Tif? Now, 
Let's come to the sixth reason. What's the sixth and last reason? And by the way, this is the only reason that has two people backing it. All the other reasons were said by one. Here you have two people. Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef both said, you know what happened on the 15th day of Av? It's the day in which they stopped chopping down trees for the arrangement of the wood to be burnt on the altar in the Beis HaMikdush. Meaning, the Tanya we learned. Rabbi Eliezer HaGadol Oymer, Rabbi Eliezer the Great said, From the 15th day of Av and on, the strength of the sun wanes. So from that date, they could not cut additional wood for the arrangement of the wood on the altar because the wood would not properly dry and therefore would be unfit to use. Meaning, remember, the Mizbeach, the altar in the Beis HaMikdash, had a fire that was constant. That fire was fueled from firewood. That wood had to be arranged. When? There was a cutoff date. That was Hamish Asabav. On the 15th day of Avon Eretz Yisrael, the heat, the intensity of the heat of the sun begins to weaken. It begins. When, when the wood is not dry enough, when there's moist, worms get into it. When worms get into it, you can't use it in the Beis HaMikdash. So what was the cutoff time, pun intended, for cutting wood in the forest to use for the Beis HaMikdash? Chamisha Asabaav was the last day. It started in Nisan, when, when, when spring descends upon Israel, and they cut it off, usually August time, Chamish us above, this was the last day. The next day, you can't cut wood anymore. You have to wait till Nissan to cut wood. Again, why? Because the, the sun is weaker, and therefore the wood will not dry sufficiently, and it could be wormy, and that you're not allowed to use that for the Mizbeach and the Beis HaMikdash. So Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef say, and they quote Rabbi Lezer's explanation, why is this the greatest Yom Tif? Because they stopped cutting the wood. Amar Reb Menashe. Reb Menashe said, let me tell you something more. Taver Magal. They gave this day a name, the 15th day of Av, a name. The day of the breaking of the axe. Yom, the day Taver, Taver is breaking in Aramaic. Magal is an axe or a sickle, usually an axe. The day of the breaking of the axe. Because... Why do you use the axe to cut the wood, to fell the wood? But now you can't cut wood anymore. It's done, finished. Cut off time. So what happened? So it's the day when they broke, the Rashbam says, the day they broke the axes. They broke Yoim Tava Magreb says. And the Gemara says, adds a new thing, from this point on, the days begin to shorten and the nights become longer. The nights were created to learn, the days were created to work. So he says, from this day on, whoever adds in their third study, they will add to their life. Okay. So now, it's interesting. The first five reasons, at least, I can hear something positive that happened. The sixth reason, what's the Yom Tif? Okay, it was cut off time. <laughs> you can't cut wood because you're not going to have the sun hot enough to dry it. So why is this such a holiday? Not only a holiday, it's the greatest holiday of the year. It's like, why? Because they stopped cutting the wood. Why they stopped cutting the wood? Because actually summer is coming to an end. Is that such good news? <laughs> Kids are coming home from camp. 
Coming home from the country. Back on your heads. Rosh Hashanah is coming. Sukkot is coming. Remember all the meals. Especially this year, right after Shabbos. Isn't that exciting? They stopped cutting the wood. Okay. It's an interesting day. But this makes it the greatest Yom Tif. All of the five reasons need explanations. But this one? It's like, what's the celebration? It's like you're saying, this is the deadline, you can't do it afterwards. Okay, so why is it such a yomtif? Very hard to understand. And not only that, as I said, this is the last reason, and this reason has three people behind it, versus the other reasons, which each have one. And it seems like, therefore, that this is the primary reason for the celebration of Chamisa Sabaav, and it's so hard to understand. What's even more interesting is that Rev Menashe says, they gave the name a day, the day of the breaking of the axe. What does that mean? So some commentators say it just means they let go of the axe. But actually, it says the day that they broke the axe. The Rashbam writes in Baba Basra, Kufchafalaf, he says, Nishbiru hakardumais. They broke the, the, the axes were broken, which is strange. Why break them? Put them away for next year. Use them for other things. Even if you don't want to use them for other things, maybe because they used it for the wood, for the Besamitish. Maybe they didn't want to use it for other things. Store them away. Generally, breaking something that's useful is prohibited. Baltashchis. You're not going to destroy something. This is an axe. It's a good axe. Why are you breaking it? Yoim taver magal. Nishbiru hakarduma, Yisrael Bam says. Why? Why are you breaking the axe? And that becomes the name of the day. The day when we break the axes. Rabbeinu Gershom, one of the great Talmudic commentators, says that the celebration was because they stopped cutting wood, so now they had more time to learn Torah. So they went back to learning. The Rashbam says that's not the reason. The reason is because there was a mitzvah to cut wood. They needed wood. They finished doing the mitzvah. You finish a mitzvah, you celebrate. He says it was a mitzvah, of cutting the wood, you celebrate when you finish doing the mitzvah. Why doesn't he agree with Rabbeinu Gershom? The reason they celebrated is because now they can go back to learning. Because according to that, the main idea of the celebration is completely ignored. He says the reason that we're celebrating is the day they stopped cutting wood. According to Rabbeinu Gershom, that's not even the issue. The issue is because now that they're not cutting the wood, they can go back to learning. So why don't you say explicitly what the reason is? Besides the fact it's hard to understand that they make such a yomtif, and the biggest yomtif among the Jewish people... Because they stopped doing something that was actually very precious and important for the Beis HaMikdash. So that's why the Rashbam says the reason is because they finished doing a mitzvah. Now granted, but let's think about this. Cutting wood is actually not a mitzvah. It's called a heksher mitzvah. The mitzvah was to put wood on the altar to have a fire. In order to have wood, you have to cut wood. Even when we finish an actual mitzvah, we don't have a, such a big celebration. People finish learning a Masechta, they make a seal. So they make a celebration. But you don't say it's the biggest Yom Tov in the whole year. Here, they weren't even doing technically a mitzvah. They were doing something that's a preparation for a mitzvah. It's called a Heksha mitzvah. And yet, on this we say, it's an awesome mitzvah. And when they finish it, it's Yehoyo Yom Tovim Yisrael. And it gets a special name, the day of the breaking of the axe. How are we supposed to understand all of this? All the six reasons... And especially, especially the last one. The truth is that if we go one step deeper, we'll see how each of these reasons is extremely significant and fine-tuned 
to explain Chamesh Asabav. Remember, the Mishnah started off with the five calamities of Tishabav. Right after that, he says, there was no greater holiday than Chamesh Asabav. Most people would say he was just trying to end on a positive note. But really, the two are very deeply connected. It's not just he was trying to end off on a positive note, but there's a very deep relationship between Tishabav and Chamisha Asabav. The way the Jewish calendar works, everybody knows, is our calendar is arranged around the moon. It's a lunar calendar. All of our holidays, our months, the beginning of the month is based on the new moon. And basically, the fact that our calendar is a lunar calendar is not just a coincidence, it's because Jewish history, Chazal say Yisrael, doimen lelevana, Jewish history follows the lunar phases. The Zoyer explains that the Jewish people mark time with the moon because we are the moon of the world. We rise and fall through the nights of history. We know times of growth and also times of diminution, of, 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 of restrictions. There are moments of great luminescence, alternating, alternating with moments of obscurity and darkness. And like the moon, every downfall is a prelude to a rebirth. Unlike the sun, the moon experiences from our perception so many vicissitudes. It's born, it's small, but the sliver grows and grows until you have the full moon on the 15th night of the month. Tesvav, the Zoya says, That's when the moon is complete, and then it begins to wane. And then when it's actually closest to the sun, it disappears from our eyes. It's gone, you don't see it anymore. But only to be reborn a day or two later when we create Rish Chodesh, the new month, and it continues to grow. The Jewish people represent the moon of history. Through the long nights of history, the moon is sometimes small, the moon waxes, the moon wanes, and then sometimes you look at the moon and you say, there's nothing left, there's nothing there. You would think the moon has disappeared from the face of the horizon for eternity, only to be surprised by its rebirth and then its continuous growth. That's the story of the moon. And it's the story of the Jewish people. We say in Kiddush Lavana, Shehem Asidim Lehishadesh Kamoisa. And that's why you'll see some of the great Jewish holidays are on the 15th day of the month, Pesach. We come out of our exile. The moon is complete, 15th of the month. Sukkot. 15th of the month. Shavuos is the 6th of the month, but Shavuos is actually a continuation of Pesach because it's the 50th day after Pesach. Even in later generations, Purim is the 14th, and Shushan Purim in Shushan, the 15th day of the month because it represents the rebirth and the wholesomeness that emerges after the decline, after the obscurity, after the darkness. Now when you ask a question, which month was the moon darkest? Which month was the obscurity of the moon the most telling in terms of the story of the Jewish people? And hands down we know it's Rosh Chodesh of 
the beginning of the month of Av, when the moon is closest to the sun, that's when you don't see it. Because basically the moon is facing the sun and the earth is parallel to the moon, which is parallel to the sun, so we don't see any of the moon. And then when the moon starts moving away from the sun, we start getting a little glimmer of it. Rosh Av, which begins the nine days, the darkest period of Jewish history, represents the complete obscurity and darkness even deeper than any other month because of the events that happen on that month. And here is the rule. The rule is in life that the greater an object's plunge down a mountainside, the greater the momentum that carries it up on the next mountain. The further an arrow is pulled back on the bow, the greater the force that will carry it forward when it's allowed to fly. This basic law of physical nature is a result of the same law in the spiritual nature. It's also true in the lunar calendar. It's also true in the spiritual qualities of the Jewish people. The lower the descent, the loftier the ascent to follow. The mystics call this Yerida Tzorich Aliyah. If the descent is for the sake of an ascent, the lower the descent, the higher the ascent. It's like that momentum of that object plunged down the mountain being pulled up the next mountain. We know emotionally and psychologically when a person is often experiencing a very difficult and challenging moment where sometimes I look down and I could see the abyss open before me, it's those moments of vulnerability when we often reach our deepest clarity, our deepest spiritual wisdom. When my ego is shattered and my mind opens up, I can experience infinity in a way that I couldn't experience it before. So from the moon's perspective, every yirida, every descent is an opportunity, it's an invitation that the light that comes after the darkness, the rebirth is of a completely different nature. Because when my comfort zones are completely shattered, what now happens is I find deeper resources inside of me that I never had access to. I find a wisdom that I never had access to. It's like a home. As long as the walls are standing, there's no real expansion. I demolish the walls, and it's really a destruction. But it's always the beginning of renovation, of expansion. Sometimes what I'm familiar with gets demolished. My expectations, my paradigms, my perceptions, what my life is supposed to look like, what my children are supposed to look like, what my marriage is supposed to look like. You know, we all come into life with dreams and expectations and we create puzzles and we create plans and we create to-do lists. You know the to-do lists? And I'm not just talking about to-do lists, you know, I have to go to the cleaners, I have to pick up... Uh, I have to pick up this, I have to pick up that. I'm talking the existential to-do lists, you know. This is what my life is going to look like. But very often, unfortunately, those dreams don't materialize, at least not in the same way. And when I'm facing those difficult, vulnerable moments, and I look at my moon, and it disappeared, it's eclipsed. It's eclipsed by maybe depression. It's eclipsed by a mood disorder. It's eclipsed by pain, internal or external. It's eclipsed by circumstances. So the secret of Jewish history is this moon did not disappear. This moon is actually now closest to the sun and there's going to be rebirth. And the rebirth that comes after the deepest 
forms of vulnerability is the most powerful rebirth. Because it's the rebirth that comes from my deepest, most intimate resources and place. It's the rebirth that comes from no vestige of ego. It's the rebirth that comes when I completely let go. Let go and I become a conduit for a different nature of light for infinity. If the greatest descent was on in of, so when is the moon brightest, spiritually speaking? On the 15th day of of. The greatest Yerida creates the greatest, deepest Aliyah. So now, when the Shimon ben Gamliel, who suffered the wrath of Rome, after the Mishnah says, let me tell you what happened on Tisha B'Av. Now he says, There was no Yom Tov like the 15th day of Av. The core of what he's saying is that the 15th of Av is the day that redefines Tisha B'Av. It's the moon that is reborn and finds wholeness after the obscurity and the darkness of the eclipsing of the moon 15 days earlier at the end of Tammuz, the beginning of Av, the middle of the three weeks, the beginning of the nine days. Because there's no power, there's no celebration, like the celebration that comes from transforming my pain, my negative energy. When I can take the darkness and transform it into life, the momentum of that is unprecedented. If you sometimes meet people, and you could see, sometimes you meet a person and you could feel there's a halo of light around them. You could feel a sense of just inspiration in their presence. A maturity, a depth, uh, no vanity, no superficiality, no shtick, no flattery, no idiosyncrasies, no, uh, you know, shtick as they say. You Sometimes you're, you feel you're in the presence of, of, of somebody who their attitude to life is just coming from a very, very deep and authentic place. And we all know if you ask the person for their story, there was something they had to work through, something they had to transform. Because when I could go to those places that I'm weak and take those weakest moments and transform them into springboards for growth, there is no growth like that. Because the light that comes from the metamorphosis is the deepest light. It has an intensity to it. It has an infinity to it that is unlike anything else. It's not something I ask for. It's not something you try to go into. But as life hurls its curveballs on our psyches, and I catch that curveball, and even if it's painful, because it's a hard ball, it's not a soft ball. You know the difference? <laughs> Sometimes there's soft balls. Okay, you miss it. Sometimes it's a hard ball. But when I catch that, and I embrace it, and I grow with it, the profound light of this person is, is just incredible. It's, 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 it's real. There's nothing as powerful as it, as, as that type of light, that type of presence. So Hamisha us above what he's saying is really that transformation of the ninth of Av. And that puts it in a different category, even beyond Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot, with their greatness, because it's the transformation, it's the full moon that came after such a dark moon. It's a different level of light. I just have to share an experience that happened this Tisha B'Av. 
I was invited on Sunday to address an event in a new shul here on Martha, the Baal Shem Tov shul. Uh, the shul was built as a replica from the Baal Shem Tov shul in Mezhebush in Ukraine. But Rabbi David Lichtenstein, who built the shul, he told me that he got stones from 22 shuls in Poland that were destroyed by the Nazis, and for 75 years they are just piles of debris. 22 shuls in Poland decimated by the Nazis. And they remain, they just remain churvis. 22 of these shuls, he transported rocks and put them in to one of the walls of the shul. You could see this irregular rocks there. A few weeks ago, they were excavating Warsaw. They were excavating a street in Warsaw. And they came across a fascinating archaeological discovery. As you know, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising happened in April 43, the first night of Pesach. Jews went from the Seder into the uprising. It lasted a few weeks. They put up a heavy fight. The Germans burnt down the whole ghetto. All the 500,000 Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto were either killed there, transported to Treblinka, transported to other death camps. Very few survivors. But what they did was they brought in Jews, prisoners, to clean up the ghetto and to completely flatten it, to leave no vestige of anything else. You go today to Warsaw and you look for the Warsaw Ghetto, there's nothing. They could just show you where it was. It was completely, completely gone. Mila 18 was the famous bunker from where Mordechai Alenevich staged the, the uprising. They excavated and they found his bunker. They found Tfilin over there. They found Sfarim over there. Just a few weeks ago. I saw it in the newspapers. So seven rocks from that bunker in the Warsaw Ghetto were brought here. And he had five Holocaust survivors on Tisha B'Av putting in the rocks from Warsaw Ghetto bunker into the shul. Two of these survivors were in the Warsaw Ghetto. They were sent there to clean up. One of them worked with the Kloisenberger Rebbe to literally slave labor, clean up the ghetto. So they were both in the Warsaw Ghetto and they put the rocks into the shul. And there was a diary that was discovered from somebody who survived the Warsaw Ghetto. I knew him. His name was Dr. Hillel Zeidman. He wrote a diary in January '43, and he wrote there, that if I'm lucky and I get out of this hell, I would love to take a few stones from here and put them by the Kaisel Maravi, so that Jews, when they come to the Kaisel, they could weep for what was lost in Poland. So as I was watching these Holocaust survivors put in the, put in the stones, and then one of them is a Kayan, he was born in Munkach, he gave Berchus Kayanim, I thought to myself that, you know, there's no such a thing as, people say there's such a thing called Holocaust stories. There's no Holocaust stories. There were no stories in the Holocaust. There was pain that was unimaginable. A million and a half kids gas is not a story. The starving children in the ghetto is not a story. We turn it into documentaries and films and stories because we want to talk about it. But there was no stories. It was just endless, unfathomable pain. And yet I'm looking, 80 years later, you had there a Jew, 101 years old. Another Jew, 99 years old. Another Jew, 94 years old. And they're standing in a shul called the Baal Shem Tov Shul and putting in a stone that's now going to a shul where Jews daven and learn every day. 
you saw that power of transformation. And I'm not saying transformation in the sense that it explains or justifies or rationalizes, but transformation in the sense that eight decades later, these very stones, that if I was a fly on the wall in Warsaw and I watched it, I would be certain that the Jewish story is coming to an end. And yet eight decades later, these very stones are now part of the foundation of a place where Jews celebrate life three times a day. Shachris, Mincha, Meir, Shabbos, Yom Tif, etc. Now, when you go through the six reasons for the celebration of the 15th day of Av, you'll see that each reason is exactly defining the meaning of transformation. These are not just random reasons that were chosen out of a box. Oh, this happened, that happened, that happened. Each reason redefines and creates some type of healing and rectification for the five calamities that happened on Tisha B'av. And if you go, you'll go through the reasons, we'll see it. We said on Tisha B'av, Betar was defeated. Betar was, it was the end. And yet on Hamish Asabah, you saw that even though the tragedy didn't come to an end, but they were given the dignity of burial. It means this wasn't just a random event with no historical significance. God has abandoned the Jewish people. It meant there was meaning, there was still love. This was a divine wink. I'm still with you. It says when Yosef was taken to Egypt, he was sold as a slave. So the Torah says in Vayeshev that the caravan with the Yishma'elim had all types of wonderful, fragrant spices. So Rashi says, why? It's a long journey to, to Egypt. He shouldn't have to sit in a coach, in a wagon, with the horrible smells. So I want to ask you a question. If Hashem is so concerned about Yosef's smell, why don't you just send him home? Instead of putting him into a spice store with, ah, geschmack, geschmack, wonderful perfume. Send me home to my father. Yoytze the psalmim. Right? <laughs> the answer, of course, is it was a wink. Yosef was on a journey, a difficult journey, but it was a wink. I didn't forget you. You're not abandoned. You're not just infinitesimal chopped liver. You're not a worthless random mutation living on the surface of infinity amounting to nothing. Your life is orchestrated. You weren't just sold, you were sent. For Yosef, this was a wink. A wink in the pain. The Jewish people, when they saw that the bodies did not decompose and they were given burial 14 years later, they were allowed to bury them. It meant a lot. It meant that this was not the end of history. This was a phase, a painful phase of history. The moon did not disappear. The moon is going to be reborn. So that element of Tishabov had some form of closure and the beginning of a transformation, the beginning of redefining a dark event into an event that's part of a journey of life. Because Jews never recognized that darkness is the end of it all. The moon disappears. It's dark. But stay present and the moon will make a comeback.
it will be reborn, and that becomes our Rosh Chodesh. That's the new month. Rosh Chodesh from the word Chidush. Chidush, newness. And we all go through those phases. And you may know Rosh Chodesh is a holiday that was given to the Jewish women, it says in Medrash. And the Kabbalists say that the way Hashem created the feminine versus the masculine is that the feminine reality reflects in its own organism the phases of the moon. Two weeks and two weeks, etc. Because this is an internal process that every person goes through, but the feminine soul is sensitive to that energy in a very profound way. That's why Rosh which is the birth of the new moon, the birth after obscurity, is the female holiday. We now come to the second reason. What was the second reason? We spoke about the fact that it was the day that the people in the Midbar received the decree that they're not going to go into Eretz Yisrael, and Chamish Asabav, they saw the decree ended. In other words, the journey in the wilderness wasn't the end of history, it was a phase of history, it was a journey. It prepared their children to go into the land. That was a very powerful moment of healing. We speak about the fact that the Shvatim could get married to each other. That's also a part of coming into Eretz Yisrael, because till that point... I didn't have full ownership over my part in the land of Eretz Yisrael because if I was a daughter of if I was the daughter of Tzlavchad, when you own a piece of property, you can give it to whoever you want. When you don't own it, you can't give it to whoever you want. The fact that there was this limitation, I cannot share my property with another tribe, meant it's not fully mine. This day, the entry into Eretz Yisrael, the ownership of Jews over Eretz Yisrael was on a different level. I can share it with another tribe. And not only that, till that point, every tribe could only have access to its own plot in Eretz Yisrael. Now, all of the tribes can have access to all of Eretz Yisrael. Because through this marriage, things can be shared. So the whole Klai Yisrael has a connection to the whole Eretz Yisrael. So again, this is another phase in coming into Eretz Yisrael, the rectification of what happened on Tisha B'av, where they were told they cannot go into Eretz Yisrael. So we discussed Betar as a rectification. We discussed the Shvatim marrying each other as a rectification. We discussed the decree of the people dying in the desert as a rectification. But what's the main thing that happened on Tisha B'av? Both Batei Mikdash were destroyed. That means the service in the Beis HaMikdash stopped, but then there's also the reason it stopped. The Gemara says, everybody knows in Yuma, the main reason for the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash was internal discord, contention, animosity, and hatred. When Jews don't get along with each other, it wreaks havoc, it creates havoc. For us and for the world. We say, We say, not one enemy tried to destroy us in each generation. You have the Islamic jihadists and the Hamasniks and the Ahmadinejads and Nasrallahs and Rawanis. But the Sfasemis once said, Shaloi echod bilvad The really one thing that threatens us is Loi Echad. We it's hard for us to be one. Loi echad bilvad, not being echad, amad aleinu lechaliseinu. It creates a breach in the fortress. When there's loy echad, that power of unity is incredible. And it's hard, you see it's hard for Jews to really not agree. You don't have to agree with each other, God forbid. But there's a difference, you know, a couple can disagree. There's nothing wrong. In fact, if you're a Jewish couple, you should probably disagree. At least once a year. 
Okay, twice a year. <laughs> what undermines marriages is not people disagreeing. What undermines marriages, there's no trust. The disagreement is seen as negative. When um, people can trust each other, rely on each other, no, I have your back a thousand percent, you have my back a thousand percent, disagreements actually are good to broaden horizons. Explain it to your husband. You don't have to do it in my name. Disagreements don't destroy the Jewish people. What destroys us is when the disagreements turn into animosity. I can't look at you. I can't love you. I can't connect to you. I can't be here for you. You can't be here for me. When we stop talking to each other, when there's a sense of no trust, that was the cause of the Chorban. So the rectification of Hamish above happens on both levels. The beginning of a rebuilding and unity. So now you see the other reasons. Shevet Binyamin was excommunicated from the Jewish people. There was a real rift in Klal Yisrael. Chamisha Sabav, unity came back. That's the beginning of the healing of Tishabav. That's the transformation that comes after the darkness. Because we all know the greatest unity is the unity that comes after a rupture. When a couple, a Hassan and Kala, get engaged and they don't disagree with each other, doesn't mean there's going to be Gavaldika Shalom bias. Talk to me after the first fight. If we know how to experience reconciliation after rupture, we're good to go. The challenge of marriages is, we agree, great, but then there's rupture. And what happens then? If you can't bring the pieces together after rupture, the marriage is very weak, it's skin deep. Rupture allows us to create reconciliation that's mature, that's authentic, it's worked out. It's not unity based on the fact that I always see things your way. It's unity based on the fact that even if I see things differently, we can talk about it, we can respect each other. Make sense, ladies, what I'm saying? You see, my wife trained me well. Lori, did my wife train me well? You can ask, yeah, yeah. Somebody once told me, Rabbi Waiwai, and they say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The problem is I don't have a tunnel. I said it on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, somebody sent me a horrible joke. He said, why are people in New York so uptight? He said, you would also be if the light at the end of your tunnel was New Jersey. But we have some people from New Jersey. I love New Jersey. I love New Jersey. Yeah, it's... it's I, I, I'm not going to give you an intellectual answer because I don't have an intellectual answer. I can give you an emotional answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't underestimate women. <laughs> we have Rish Chodesh every month because sometimes when we're cl- climbing Mount Everest, the roads become very winding and uh, the mountain becomes very, very steep. You ever climb Mitzada Mountain? Sometimes the mountains are very steep. You know, if I'm going to stretch, if you stretch and exercise, if I'm going to really stretch, it's going to hurt because I'm stretching. Whenever our minds and souls are being stretched, there's pain. But the, you got the answer? Wow. Yeah, I just would rephrase. I wouldn't say better do. That's a little too, it sounds too vindictive for me. It's not better do. It's really being present to the opportunity and to the energy and, and learning from it. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt to stretch. It hurts. It hurts. Stretching hurts. 
but but when I'm stretching, I don't want to get angry, cynical, uh, depressed, run away from my personal trainer. I will. I will get angry. I will get cynical. I will run away. We do those things. And you have to respect that too. You can't judge anything. Pain is pain. Right, good. <laughs> so, so now we come to the other reasons. Binyamin, there's a rift. When Binyamin comes back, it's not just a nice event. It's the transformation of the sin of the, the animosity that created Tisha above. That's the power of the holiday. It's the reconciliation after such rupture. The same is true when the Shvatim could marry each other. There's a new level of unity. They don't have to stay only to their tri- in their tribe, their comfort zone, their mishpacha. There's an extended unit. There's a, there's a deeper unity. Hoshea ben Elah removes the roadblocks. What happens? All the tribes could now unite in Yerushalayim. Again, the unity is created and they can go to the Beis Hamikdash. So you have here, you see, the transformation of Tisha B'av. And which unity? Remember, the greatest rift was between Yosef and his brothers. In the kingdoms, it came between Yeravam and Rechavam. Yeravam came from Ephraim, Yosef. Rechavam came from Shlomo Melech Yehuda. The rift of the brothers was reenacted in the two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Yeravam created roadblocks. Hoshea ben Elah said, we're one people. Yosef and Yehuda come back together. The spies are the ones who caused the Jews not to go into Eretz Yisrael. But there were two spies who tried to reverse the process. Yehoshua and Kalev. Yehoshua came from which tribe? Ephraim, Yosef. Kalev came from the tribe of Yehuda. Yehoshua and Kalev were the two spies who understood the power of unity. Yehoshua and removes the roadblocks. Binyamin came from which woman? Binyamin came from Rachel. Yosef is from Rachel, Yehuda is from Leah. Rachel and Leah created that split. So when Binyamin comes back to the Jewish people, it's not just Binyamin, it represents Rachel and Yosef, it represents those two streams uniting. Now we can appreciate the last reason, the day when they stopped cutting wood for the Beis HaMikdash. And here it comes full circle, why? Because... The Beis Hamikdash, as the Rambam says, was built. The Rambam in the laws of Beis Hamikdash, Beis Abchiri, says the mitzvah is to build lasses bayis lashem liyos muchon lahakriv by karbonus, a home to be able to come closer. Karbonus from the word kirov to bring offerings and come closer to Hashem. So the wood was one of the main features of the mizbeach because that is what allowed all the karbonus, which had to be burnt on the altar. Without wood, you're not having any fire. So when they're cutting the wood and they're finishing to cut the wood, they're finishing that mitzvah, they're actually allowing for the Mizbeach to burn in the Beis HaMikdash and fulfill its ultimate purpose. So Tisha B'av, which is the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, is now reversed in Chamish above when they finished cutting the wood during the time of the Beis HaMikdash to allow for the Beis HaMikdash to flourish. But it's much more than that. There's a mitzvah called Tzedakah. But when I give charity, I'm giving to one person, I'm giving to one organization. But if I went to cut wood in the forest, who was this tzedakah for? Which Jew would benefit from the karbonis? And the answer is, every single Jew. Because every day there were karbonis brought for the whole community, karbonis tzibur, and every individual brought karbonis throughout the year. So when I cut wood, it wasn't tzedakah for one person, or one home, or one family, or one tribe. It was literally for every single Jew who would benefit from this wood. It's a different level of tzedakah. And not only that, 
when I cut this wood, I knew there's no replacement. It's not like I give you something and I go get a new one in the store. Here, I can't get new wood tomorrow. Till Nissan, you're not getting a replacement for this wood. So I'm really giving something away that I can't just replace. So this, and why am I doing it? It's not only for my offerings, I'm doing it for your offerings. So this represented finishing a mitzvah, mitzvah gedolah of tzedakah, ultimate unity of the Jewish people, and the ultimate feature that allows the Beis HaMikdash to function. So here you have the greatest transformation of Tisha B'Av, when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed because of the hatred. And the cutting of the wood represents the exact antithesis of it. The Pasuk says that on the stones of the altar, you weren't allowed to use iron. You weren't allowed to use iron to adjust to, uh, what's the word? Uh, hone, to uh, hone the stones of the Mizbeach. You weren't allowed to use barzel, iron. They had to use avanim shleimos, complete racks for the Mizbeach. Why? So the Mishnah says, and Rashi quotes in Yisroi, because barzel, iron, was the primary instrument of yore to destroy people's lives. Whether swords or spears or arrows or knives or daggers, barzel, iron, was the primary instrument that ancient man discovered to cut down people's lives. The whole purpose of the Mizbeach was what? To increase life, to increase peace, to increase harmony. So you don't use iron on the stones of the Mizbeach. So now we can understand the significance. The ultimate rectification of Tisha B'Av. They used axes to cut wood. Now they can't cut wood anymore. So what's left with the axe? Now it's iron. An axe is made of iron with a wooden handle, but it's iron. So now it's not anymore to cut the wood to build the base, to build the, to, to have a base amikdash. Now the iron is just iron, so they broke it. It wasn't about tashkes. It was the ultimate idea that we're breaking the last vestiges of animosity, of discord, of contention, of hatred. As long as we're using the axes to cut wood, beautiful. Now we can't cut a wood anymore. So the mitzvah of cutting the wood, which is the greatest tzedakah for Klal Yisrael, representing the unity, and it's giving something you're not going to be able to replace, and it's for every Jew, sinners and not sinners, because everybody had to have karbonist, sibur and yach. And this mitzvah, which is there to allow for the Beis HaMikdash to function, representing the functioning of the Beis HaMikdash, the antithesis of Tisha B'av. It's more than that. It's now we break. We break the barzel. We break the barzel, the iron representing the shortening of life in an ultimate celebration of the unity, which is the transformation of Tisha B'av. So this final sixth reason represents the ultimate healing of not just a nice day, like the metamorphosis of that great darkness into a new era of wholeness, of love, of unity, of harmony. And what did they do on that day? How do you celebrate that? They went out to create Shaduchim. Because where do you have the greatest experiment of harmony in nature? Everybody knows. <laughs> where do you have the greatest fights? And where do you have the greatest experiment of unity? Everybody knows. There's one institution. It's called marriage. That's where humanity learns to get along. If I can't get along with my own spouse, with my own family, I'm not going to get along with the world. Only in theory. If I can't get along with my own people, 
I'm not going to, it's very easy to be nice to strangers. You know what do they say, right? Peace begins in the family. In the mishpucha, as they say in Yiddish. Mishpucha. It's also hard. Nobody gets on your nerves like family. Present company excluded. You don't know anybody like family. It's a different level. But the Rebbeinu Shalom, when he created the world, that is where we learn how to build a unified world. That's where children learn how to work out differences. They watch mommy and they watch tati. They learn conversation. They learn communication. Everything there is to learn about trust, about vulnerability, about love, and about disagreements. You learn in the crucible that we call home. I think there's a book called The Family Crucible, right? It's an interesting, an interesting theory over there. And the Gemara says that the girls that went out came from all different backgrounds and all different persuasion. You had the daughter of the king. You had the daughter of the kind Godel. And you had a person who couldn't afford, couldn't afford an outfit. And they all borrowed from each other. In other words, there was an re- urgent representation of unity, of oneness. And each one appealed in a different way. The Gemara goes through what each one said. And yet they were in a machal, they were in a dance. A dance is always people together in a circle. There's no beginning, there's no middle, and there's no end. The Zayar says that they were wearing silk clothes. You would think, okay, Zayar silk, it's something special. Because the Vilna Gaon says, the reason we don't mix wool and linen, shatnas, is because the first war of brothers. Cain brought his carbon from pishton, from flax, from linen. Hevel brought sheep, which is the source of wool. And those brothers couldn't bring it out together. So wool and linen is, represents that war. At this moment, they were wearing silk, they were wearing meshi. And they borrowed it from each other. That was the rectification. And that's why, and here we come full circle, and again, pun intended. How does the Gemara end the whole sugya, Maseches Tainus? It seems like completely disconnected, but now we will see that it's exactly connected. And this is the last piece I want to do here. At the end of the sources, the last thing is, oh, could be, fell out of your sources, I'll read it to you. The Gemara finishes Maseches Tainus. Rebbe Lazar said, Ula said in the name of Rebbe Lazar, Asada Kaddish Baruch Ulasis Machalat Sadikim Vuyeshiv B'neim B'ganeidin. Hashem in the future is going to arrange a dance, a machol, a dance, for righteous people, and He's going to sit amongst them in Gan Eden, and everyone is going to point with their finger. The Pasuk says, On that day, everyone is going to say, Here is our God, here is Elekeinu, the one we waited for, here is Hashem Kivinu It seems like just a very nice connection, talking about the girls dancing, so we're talking about God dancing in Ganeid. But the truth is, Bakiva Eger says something very powerful here. He says, Think for a moment about a circle. A machel is a circle. If you make a perfect circle, and it says Hashem is sitting in the middle, what's the distance between the center of the circle and every part of the circle? Exactly the same. Unless you don't know what you're doing. You didn't use a compass. When I make a circle, it's not going to look that way. But if it's theoretically, not theoretically, if it's a perfect circle, equidistant. There's no part of the part of the person at that edge, oh, you're further away, you're closer. So he says something very powerful. Every person has their own shlichas, their own mission. 
Every tzaddik has his own path. Every soul has its own path. But it's so easy to get into a judgmental and condemnation mode. In the future, Hashem is going to make a machel. It's going to be a perfect circle. And He's going to be in the middle. And everybody's going to point and say, This is Hashem. What's that? No, I have God. You don't have God. <laughs> you don't have God. But the distance from the center of the circle to every part of the circle is identical. But one second, you're opposing me. I'm on this side, you're on this side. Could you come to this side? You don't have to come to this side to be any closer to the center of the circle. It's all one macha. The word macha means a dance. It also comes from the word mechila, forgiveness, which is the concept of Yom Kippur, the second day. Because the macha, the dance, is what allows that appreciation of each other, which is what creates real forgiveness, which is the idea of Yom Kippur, the second day of the Shaduchim. There can be real unity if there's no forgiveness. Of course I could say something that hurts your feelings. That's what happens in a marriage, unless everybody is mute for 90 years, which among Jews it's not going to work. I mean, we can try. But there is reconciliation. There's a machal. There's a dance. There's the idea of respecting your space and knowing Hashem is in the center, your center, but also my center. And we could both point. That's the idea of the machal. Who yoyshev beinehem? He sits among them in the middle. Reb Eger, his grandson, Akiveger says that's begematria emes aleph mem sof. Who yoyshev beinehem is four hundred and and forty one. Why a dance? Whenever you're dancing in a circle, there's no leader and follower. Who's the leader and follower in a circle? There's no the person in the beginning, the person in the middle, the person you're at the end. You're a recipient. I'm the mentor. I'm the giver. It's all one circle. What's the greatest yomtiv by Jews? The Rambam says at the end of Hilchus Malachim, the definition of the times of Mashiach, the end of hate, the end of negative, negative competitiveness, and the end of envy of jealousy. When there's no color war anymore, I don't mean camp color war, that's very important. But I'm talking about emotional and psychological color war in our homes, families, communities. So the Apterov says, There's no holiday by Jews like the 15th of Av. What's Av? Olive Bays. What's the 15th of Olive Bays? The fifteenth letter of the Aleph base. Come with me. Aleph base. Gimel. Dalit. Hey. Vav. Zayin. Ches. Tes. Yud. Chaf. Lamed. Mem. Nun. Samach. What does a samach look like? A circle. It's the only letter. Any way you turn it, it's going to be the same. Any other letter. Aleph base. Gimel. You turn it on the other side. No, no. You just ruin the letter. You have to be on top. I have to be on bottom. That's how we can be a letter. Samach. You could turn me around. A thousand times. And it's exactly the same. Why? Because there's no higher and lower. It's a perfect circle. Samach. It's a machal. It's a dance. There's no yom tev bayidin. Kachamisha osar be'av. Kachamisha osar ba'alav beis. Like the 15th letter, chamisha osar, of of, of the alphabet, which is the letter samach. There's no holiday like that, because that's the holiday that represents the ultimate aliyah, the ultimate rectification and healing of Tisha B'av. This also explains 
why now we don't see a big celebration of Chamesh Because essentially Chamesh is the light of the Geula. And since it's the light of the Geula, it's the greatest Yom Tif. Reb Tzadik HaKain of Lublin says, Mashiach was born on Tisha B'Av, it says in Yerushalmi. He says, a Yom Tif, a good Yom Tif is seven days. Right? You have Pesach and Yisrael is seven days. Sukkot, besides Shemini Yatzai, is seven days. So he says, Mashiach comes in seven days. Chamisha Sabov is the seventh day of the celebration. So what happens here is, the ultimate Chamisha Sabov is the light of the Geula. So that's why we don't have rituals around it so much. Because essentially it's a very, very deep holiday, but it's not fully manifested yet in the world. And yet it's already considered a holiday. We don't say Tachnon, because there is already the foretaste of Geula. And the ability of every Jew to live in a Geula consciousness, that's Chamisha Sabov. And what happens when Mashiach comes? Yeshaya Hanavi, the Navi of Gula, what does he prophesize? If you don't remember it from Yeshaya chapter 2, you should remember it from when you toured Manhattan and you saw the walls of the United Nation. You remember what's engraved on the wall of the UN? If they would only live up to it. They have a prophecy from Yeshaya on the wall of the UN. Yeshaya says when Mashiach comes, V'chitesu charboisom, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into prune hooks. A nation won't lift a sword to another nation. They won't know war anymore. That's officially the mission statement of United Nations. The problem is that at this point, the only thing they're united about is condemning Israel. That's the only thing that unites the United Nations. But when the UN will live up to its mandate, what is that? Breaking of the axe. Taver Magal. Yeshaya Navi says that's the day that the axes will be broken. He says they will beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, use the money going into weapons. To feed people, to nourish people. which is lechem, which is lechem That's the ultimate breaking of the ox of humanity. I'm just going to finish with this little story that I recently heard from Rabbi Lau, to the former chief rabbi of Israel. Shared a story, you know, a few years ago with Corona, the concept of Zoom. Whoever bought stocks in Zoom before Corona was smart. Before Corona, not many people. So you got to hear a lot of people that usually don't hear because Zoom became a new phenomenon and we said, Gam Zoom Latoiva. So usually a bar mitzvah class in Israel, foreign Israel wouldn't have the opportunity of Rabbi Lau addressing them. But once Corona happened, everybody was stuck in the house. Zoom, you had everybody addressing everybody. So in the middle of Corona, he addressed a class, a bar mitzvah class in Israel. And he shared a story. Rabbi Lau was a, is a survivor. His father was murdered in Treblinka. His mother was murdered. His siblings were murdered. He and a brother survived. His brother smuggled him into Buchenwald in a sack. And he came out of the sack and he survived. He was the youngest or one of the youngest children survivors of the death camps. And uh, he came to Israel. He had nobody. He had an uncle in Kiryas Mochkin, an uncle. So his uncle raised him. But of course he was an orphan, his father was gone, his mother was gone. He had an older brother, Naftali. He later became council general of Israel in New York, Naftali Lavi, Naftali Lau. And he survived as well. He passed away a few years ago. 
he saved his younger brother. So Rabbi Lau said, it came to his bar mitzvah, I think he said his bar mitzvah was, portion was shlach. Summertime, the end of after Shavu was shlach, the beginning of the summer. And of course, a good bar mitzvah boy, he prepared his parsha. And Rabbi Lau has a, a presence, even when he was 13, he had a presence. So he prepared the parsha. And because he was an orphan, everybody felt obligated to come for Shabbos to the bar mitzvah. Any friend, any foreign relative, anybody who knew anybody, you know, certain bar mitzvahs you're not going to miss. There's no father, there's no mother, the whole family was destroyed like so many survivors. So the shul was packed. The shul was packed that Shabbos morning for the bar mitzvah celebration of Yisrael Meir Lau, who they called uh, uh, Lulik, Lulik, Lulik. It was Lulik and Tulik. So he was Lulik. And uh, after the Chazar Sashatz, he goes up to the Bima. They bring out the Sefer Torah, he goes up, you know, this little cute bar mitzvah kid, the first time with your talis and his hat or whatever he wore, then the shul was packed, it was never packed, and he's going up. In the shul, he said, there was a man named Moshe. Moshe was an old man. Moshe was an old man, and he was the Balkairi of the shul. He read the Torah every single week. And he had not much in life, but he loved reading the Torah, and he loved the validation that he got. As Rabbi Lau says, I'm 13, I go up to the Bima, and I see Moshe coming up to read. The Gabbai goes over to Moshe, says, Moshe, lo yesh ba mitzvah bachor. There's a bachor ba mitzvah. Moshe says, you didn't tell this to me. A whole week I prepared the parsha. You didn't tell me. The Gabbai forgot to tell him in the beginning of the week that this week is a bar mitzvah boy. He said, a whole week I prepared the parsha. The Gabbai says, okay, but he's a bar mitzvah boy. Get off the bimah. He says, Moshe says, I never have such a crowd like this. Finally, I have a crowd like this. You're going to take away the parsha for me. The Gabbai wants to punch him in the nose. The Gabbai says, the crowd is not here for you, Moshe. They're here for him. He's an orphan. He's a Holocaust survivor. He has no parents. This is his week. Rabbi Lau says, I'm watching this. I'm 13 years old. And the man is, 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 is virtually sobbing. And he's like, I do this for years. Nobody pays me. I do it voluntarily. Finally, I have one week with so much honor and respect. And you're going to steal it from me. A whole week I prepared the parasha. This is unjust. It's not fair. The Gabi was about to lift him up and throw him out of the shul. He couldn't believe that this is the conflict he's going to create with this Yasim, Yisrael Meilau. Rabbi Lau tells the boys, he said, but I saw the pain on this man's eyes. I went over and I said, you know, I'm not sure I know the Parsha so well. It would be an honor if you read the Parsha. I'll get an Aliyah. I'll get an Aliyah. You read the Parsha. I told the Gabbai, I'm fine, this is for me. I want him to read the Parsha. And I looked at Moshe and the Gabe and I said, you know, I'll probably get some other opportunities to speak in public. <laughs> Moshe said, a lottery, $370 million wouldn't give Tchiyas Amesim what he had. He went up, he had the whole shul as he read his Parsha. Rabbi Lau turned to the Mitzvah boys, he said, I want to tell you, when you become a Mitzvah, you become obligated in Mitzvahs. And the question is, what's the first mitzvah you do? He says, this was the first mitzvah I did as a bar mitzvah. This was the first mitzvah. I gave up my spot, 
And he says, and you know, I had a few opportunities to speak in public as well. He said, because from creating unity, you don't lose. That was a moment of glory. I would speak before the whole shul. And he says, today I have the privilege to speak to every community, and to have spoken to every community in the world. This was his lesson to this Bar Mitzvah class. Have a wonderful and beautiful and inspiring week. Thank you. Oh, you're asking a good question. Whatever, you know what I'm saying. You're saying, how is it that so many leaders in the Jewish people can't get along with each other? Their own brothers, yeah. And their own brothers they can't talk to. Yeah. It's very disturbing. Let me tell you something, you know. I have learned in life that uh, I can either be part of the problem or be part of the solution. (laughs) I can either be a victim or I can be a leader. Sometimes leaders themselves have a lot of trauma. Sometimes leaders themselves have insecurity. Sometimes leaders themselves get the wrong advice. Sometimes leaders themselves are, think they're doing the right thing and they don't realize they're doing the wrong thing. And we sometimes have to realize that leaders... They're great people, but listen, everybody has blind spots. We all have our eight Saharas, and sometimes I could make the wrong decisions, and it's very unfortunate. So we have a choice. I can be a follower and say, you know, this is how it is. Or I can be a leader and help people expand their horizons and see that what's necessary is a paradigm shift. And I think that's our job. And it's disappointing. It's painful. You're right. Not every leader is always the role model we would hope they should be. You know what I mean? Just like our mothers and fathers. Sometimes they're unbelievable role models. Sometimes they disappoint us. Our grandparents, our teachers, some of them are unbelievable people. All of them do great things, but some of them make bad mistakes, you know? Sometimes they have blind spots. Sometimes they get the wrong advice. Sometimes they're fed wrong information. Sometimes in their own mind they think they're doing the right thing and they don't realize the consequences. You get it? But since women are wise, so the women can create a different consciousness. And influence their men. Like Oyn Ben Pelis' wife. Sure, Hatzlacha, thank you for coming. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.